1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 9, it says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. The chapter begins with a laundry list of things that we renounce. If you go all the way back to the beginning of the chapter, remember in verse 1 it said, laying aside malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, all evil speaking. And in verse 11 it will talk about, beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts. There is a, a, a sense in which there's a laying aside of certain things and there's an embracing of other things. As a matter of fact, the chapter continues with things that we are to receive, a craving for the pure, unadulterated word of God in verses 2 and 3. And then it continues with a description of the relationships towards Christ and others. Jesus is the precious cornerstone for believers He's the precious cornerstone for those who believe, but he's a stumbling stone, a rock of offense for those who reject Jesus. And Peter has informed his readers that Jesus is the chief cornerstone in verse, verses 6 and 7. He is the chosen one in verse 4. And later, Jesus will describe Jesus as the judge in verse 12. And here in verse 9, Jesus is the light. So Peter will pile privileges deep and high. We are believers. We are in love with the Lord. We haven't rejected the chief cornerstone. But rather we've accepted him and we've joined with Jesus. We are children in the same family we learned in the last chapter. We are born from above. We've experienced the same birth in chapter 1 verses 23 through 25. We express the same love in chapter 1 verse 22. We enjoy the same nourishment Chapter 2, verses 1 and 3. We are stones in the same building. Chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. We are priests in the same temple. Verse 5 and verse 9. We are citizens in the same nation. Verses 9 and 10. Those are the privileges. I'm going to ask you a question. When I use the term privilege, what does that word mean to you? What is a privilege? When you think about a privilege, do you think about a right? Do you think about a duty? Do you think about an obligation? The English word privilege is really interesting because it comes from two root words. Privis, which is a word that has come down in our language to mean private, and lex, which is a word that has come down in our language to mean law. And if you take those two concepts, privacy or private and law, and you combine them together, it was a word that came to mean a right or an immunity, a peculiar benefit, a certain advantage, a specific favor. 
you and I, we think of the blessings or the privileges of being a mother or a father or a grandmother or a grandfather. We think of the blessings of citizenship. Because we are United States citizens, we enjoy certain freedoms which non-citizens may not have access to or advantage towards. We have accepted Jesus Christ. We've come to him as the living stone in verse 4. And when we come to Jesus, it sets in motion a series of wonderful, powerful Benefits. We received a renewed mind, according to Romans chapter 8, verse 5. We've become a new creation, like it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. If any person's in Christ, they're a new creation. Behold, the old things have passed away. Behold, everything has become new. And so Paul, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24, locks onto that concept. We are called a new man or a new woman. We've received a new spirit, it says in Romans chapter 6, verse 4. As a matter of fact, even in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19, the prophet wrote, And I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within you. I will take out the stony heart out of the flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. We experience the privilege of being joined to the Father, through the Son, we pray, we praise, we live, we serve, we do good and share, like it says in Hebrews 13, 16. We're secure in Christ in verse 6. He who believes in him, it says, will not be disappointed. We have access to God and affection for Jesus. Access, affection, election. We are chosen. Paul told the Corinthians, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is a curse. You know, it's interesting to me. It doesn't say, if the Lord hates you, you're accursed. No, it says, if anyone doesn't love the Lord, he's accursed. We love him. But both Peter and Paul and John all remind us we love him because he loved us first. And so in verse 9, it says, but you are a chosen generation. And, and by the way, the very first word in the first verse of verse 9, but you are a chosen generation, the word but is what's known as an adversative. It's something that brings something else into a strong contrast. And the contrast is found in verse 8. Remember a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. But now what Peter is going to do is he's going to draw attention not to those people who stumble over the stone, not the unbeliever who rejects Jesus, not the make-believer who's destined for eternal separation and destruction. Not the pretend Christian, but rather the true believer. We're a chosen people, a spiritual people. And so in this particular point, he says, we are genos. That means people, 
electon. Those two words together meant a chosen race or an elect race. And when he's talking about a race in that particular instance, it's a people group. Peter actually lifts the term from the Old Testament where the prophet Isaiah uses the same term to describe Israel. In Isaiah chapter 43, verse 20, it says, My people, my chosen, the people have I formed for myself. You know, people will often ask me, are the Jews the chosen people? Uh, on my radio program, even last week, uh, a lady called me and, and asked, do you believe that the Jews are the chosen people? Do you believe that the church has replaced Israel? Do you believe uh, that the promises that were given by God to Israel now apply to the church? And I said, again, my answer is going to probably surprise you. The answer is both yes and no. And let me explain. And I asked her this question. Clearly, the Jews are chosen by God, but for what reason were they chosen? And she stumbled, and she offered some suggestions. Well, maybe it's because God just loves them, and maybe it's just because of this or just because of that. And I said, let me read to you in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, where it says, The Lord said, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, the Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Know therefore the Lord your God. He is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant. And I asked her this question, what is that covenant? What is the covenant? What is the covenant that he extended? And remember what the covenant was. It was a promise. The promise was through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah, a Messiah would come. In other words, the children of Israel were chosen for a couple of reasons. Number one, so that God could place his love upon them. But number two, specifically, specifically so that they could bring forth the Messiah. God's choice wasn't rooted and grounded in Israel's mental or moral superiority, but rather by God's love and God's grace and God's mercy. God chose Israel to bring forth the Messiah. And I said, do you agree with that? And she said, yes. And I said, did they accept their Messiah? Clearly, some did. Peter, James, John, some did. But the vast majority didn't. The vast majority fell on the stone and were crushed by the stone. At the end of Deuteronomy chapter 7, in verse 9, it says, He keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousand generations with those who love him. And keep his commandments. By the way, if you don't love him, 
and you refuse to keep his commandments, if you don't love him and you refuse the Savior, then you can't have any part of the Savior. God has chosen believers to know Jesus and to love Jesus and to be saved by Jesus. We are chosen in order to enter into a relationship with God through Christ. We are chosen to bring forth fruit. And the Bible uses several superlatives to describe God's electing grace. First, God's electing grace is the solitary decision of God. Our salvation isn't based on any personal merit or personal advantage or personal qualities. Clearly, election is by grace, divine grace, unsolicited grace. God's election is eternal and unchanging and calculated to generate joy. And people will ask me, well, how do I know if I'm elect? Here's how. Repent of your sin. Repent of your sin. Admit to, to God that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. Go to Him and say, look, I, I read somewhere in the Bible where it says that if I confess my sin, that, that you'll forgive me of my sin. The Bible says that if I'll turn from my sin and receive Jesus as my Savior, the Bible says that, that if I'm weary and heavy laden, I can come to you and I can lay my burden down at your feet. The Bible says that if I will believe that Jesus came to die on the cross for my sin and rise from the dead for my justification, that you'll receive me, that if I will come to you, you will in no wise cast me out. I mean, God was there and Jesus was there at the election party, weren't they? And then ask him. And by the way, remind the Father of what Paul wrote. This is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And see what he says. If you admit you're a sinner and if you believe that Jesus died on that cross, that's how you make your calling and your election sure. We are separate and distinct from the unbelieving world around us. And that's why he says you're a chosen generation. What unites us? Well, it's our common commitment to Christ. It's our union in the Holy Spirit. Remember, he's basically making the point, we are chosen not by race. We're chosen not by culture or language. We're chosen by spiritual rebirth. Does God's choice create an excuse for pride or a, a psychological boost in self-esteem? No. God's choice continues to be rooted and grounded in his love and his mercy. And God's choice clearly wasn't made on our ability to impress him or ingratiate him. I know the reason why God chose me. And it isn't because I'm an Italian person. God's love and God's mercy and God's choice is, is strictly on the basis of his own decision. No wonder he says that we're a chosen people and a royal priesthood. Look what it says. Peter combines royalty and priesthood. Do you know where that concept comes from? 
Exodus chapter 1, verse 6, where basically God through Moses told Israel, you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But sadly, Israel forfeited her exalted position and holy privileges of priestly dominion by a persistent apostasy and a rejection of God's Messiah. All who believe in Jesus as the Messiah and trust him alone for salvation receive a privilege, a privilege that no Old Testament people received except for a specific group who were born into a specific family under a specific circumstance. You had to be born in the tribe of Levi under the house of Aaron and then you could serve in the capacity of a priest. But in Revelation chapter 5 verse 10 we discover and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. By the way, Christians have never reigned on the earth. So if we're kings and we're priests, and we're going to reign on the earth, then there must be a time in the not-too-distant future where that's exactly what happens. The word royal speaks of the royal residence or the palace and therefore, the priests who would go to the royal palace would have access to the king. God established Jesus to be the king and the Lord. Warren Wiersbe rightly points out, quote, In the Old Testament period, God's people had a priesthood. But today, God's people are a priesthood. Each individual believer has the privilege of coming into the presence of God. We learn that in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. We do not come to God through any person on the earth, but only through one mediator, Jesus Christ the Lord. You don't have to have a pastor, and you don't have to have a priest in order to have access to God. You don't even have to go to church to have access to God. Your access to God comes through Jesus Christ the Lord. And because you have access to God, because you have access, because you've been chosen by God, adopted by God, and accepted by God, and you are a part of God's family, and you are priests, you no longer have to use third-party situations in order to have access to God. When Abraham Lincoln was the president of the United States, it was a lot less formal than it is now. People had access to the president almost on a daily basis. And his children could come in at any moment and access the president of the United States. In the ancient economy of Israel, the high priest performed four basic functions. The four roles of the priest were, number one, to offer the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, he basically, number two, supervised the priests. So let me start over. Number one, he supervised the priests. Number two, he made a sin offering according to Leviticus chapter four. Number three, he offered a sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. That's Leviticus 16. And number four, it was the high priest's job <laughs> to be shown the will of God. And for him to communicate the will of God to the people. But the Bible says that Jesus is our perfect high priest. Jesus is our eternal priest. The sacrifice that he offered was the death of himself. 
Jesus Christ has made the perfect and eternal sacrifice to God. He died for our sins. He paid the penalty and the judgment of death for us. No other sacrifice by death has to be made. Part of the point of the New Testament is no one, I repeat, no one and nothing has to die anymore. Except for us, to ourself. We have to die to ourselves, putting away, crucifying the old man, the old woman, and then uniting and identifying ourselves with Jesus. So, how do you become a royal priest? Well, you have to be born into the priest's family. And when you're in the royal family and you're born into the king's family, you have access to the king. And that, by the way, is the message of the gospel. You're not turned away. You have access to his presence. Your sin that used to separate you no longer separates you because Jesus Christ has made a sacrifice. Your ability to access God is in direct proportion to God's favor as he accepts Christ's sacrifice. And that's the point of the gospel. We have the privilege of constant companionship, unbroken fellowship, Pleasant communion, that's the privilege. Now think about that. Think about, again, the beginning, but you're a chosen generation and a royal priesthood. You're not rejected. You're accepted. You're not isolated. You're included. That's why he says we're a separate people. Look at the end of the verse. You're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We're separate and distinct. You know, in California, they have sports teams just like they have here. As a matter of fact, in those sports teams, they sometimes refer to themselves as a nation. In Oakland, they call the Oakland Raiders the Raider Nation. Now, I don't have ever heard anyone refer to the Bronco fans as a Bronco Nation. But it makes perfect sense to me that that's exactly what they would call themselves. They identify themselves as separate, distinct. And so when it says a holy nation, we are called holy because we're... Now listen carefully, you know this because we've gone over it and over it again. You're separated from sin and you're separated to God. That's what makes you a holy nation. We obey God's Laws, heaven's laws. We want to please heaven's Lord. Israel forgot that she was a holy nation. And she began to break down the walls of separation that made her special and distinct. You know, if you were a Jew living in the ancient world, there was something odd and peculiar about the Jewish people. They ate different food and they wore different clothes. And some people thought, well, do you wear different clothes and do you eat different food in order to try and be separate? And that's, that was exactly right. Clean versus unclean. God commanded them to put a difference between that which was holy and that which was unholy, that which was clean and that which was unclean, but they ignored the differences and they disobeyed God. And by the way, even though we are 
a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, we face the same struggle. You're a holy nation. But when you blur the lines of distinction between clean and unclean, when you look like an unbeliever and act like an unbeliever, and I'm not saying, well, what does an unbeliever look like? Does an unbeliever have long hair or short hair? Does an unbeliever um, look a particular way? No, we're not talking about a physical appearance. We're talking about a spiritual affection. If you love exactly the same things that everybody else in the world loves... If you preoccupy yourself with everything else that the world preoccupies itself with. If you're unwilling to separate from evil and sin, but rather you embrace it so much so because there's a strong desire inside of you to be accepted instead of rejected. To be embraced instead of shunned. Because you say, you know, I'm sick and tired of being the only one at the party who doesn't get high. I'm, the, I'm sick of being the only one in school who doesn't have casual sex. I'm sick of being the only person on the job who doesn't cheat. I just want to be like everybody else. But the Bible says we're a holy nation. We're free to serve the head of that nation. Obey the laws of that nation. Dedicate ourselves to the customs of that nation. Be willing to speak up and defend that nation. And that's the body of Christ. It's the church of Jesus Christ. It's the fellowship of the believers who have entered into life instead of death, who embrace light instead of darkness. And so not only are we a separate people, but look, we're a purchased people, his own special people. The, the King James Version translates this, a peculiar people. And I know a lot of people used to get a lot of razz for that. Yeah, you, that's right, you Christians are peculiar. The Greek text says laos, it means people. Ice. Peri, Poisson, it literally means a people for possession. That means God's possession or a specific possession. Let me help you understand what this means. When it says his own special people, it means exclusive ownership, which is differentiated between shared ownership. This last week, um, I was reading some... Uh, Things in the news, particularly concerning Native Americans. Many Native Americans are not able to obtain mortgages on tribal properties because they cannot legally own the property. In tribal groups, the tribe owns the property. The tribe has equal access to the property, but you can't encumber the property or mortgage the, the property or, or own specifically and personally the property. It becomes a part of the family, if you will. We are God's personal property. 
We're not shared. There's not joint ownership. There are people who will say, this is my body. I'm free to do with it as I will. This is my mind. This is my mouth. These are my resources. I belong to myself. And remember, the Bible already says, actually, you don't. Remember, you've been bought with a price. You've been purchased. You've been redeemed. You are not your own. This is God's way of saying, you are my personal property. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, he told the children of Israel, now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you will be a special treasure to me above all people. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 17, it says, They will be mine, says the Lord Almighty, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. This may shock you, it may surprise you, it may annoy you, but if you belong to Jesus, the Bible says that you're his special property. <laughs> this week they sold Roy Rogers' estate at auction. Many of you know I grew up in the high deserts. A lot of my life was spent in the Mojave Desert in Apple Valley, and, and every once in a while I would get to go to the church where Roy Rogers went to church. It was a Presbyterian church, and Roy and Dale would sit like in the front row, and I would sit behind them, and there was Roy Rogers, and there, there was Dale Evans. You know, there was a time when Roy had made over 100 movies, and Trigger, and Dale, and Buttermilk. I mean, there was only one person in America, arguably, who was more famous than Roy Rogers, and that was probably Walt Disney. But his beloved horse Trigger was stuffed and mounted and sold for, at auction for $266,000. And Roy loved that horse. One day I was in a bowling alley and I saw Roy Rogers and I came up and I asked him for his autograph. Some of you are young, so when I say Mr. Rogers, I don't mean the guy who wears the sweater. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. That's a different Mr. Rogers. This, this Rogers, I said, Mr. Rogers, can I have your autograph? And he said, sure, son. And he took the piece of paper and he signed it, best wishes, Roy Rogers. And then he looked at me very seriously. He looked at me almost sadly. And he said, I'm going to sign for Trigger too. And I go, okay. <laughs> so he went, and Trigger. And then he looked up at me again and he said, Trigger's gone, you know. I go, yes, sir, I know. It may seem corny, it may seem crazy, it may seem strange to you, but Roy Rogers loved that horse. He loved the horse so much that he had it stuffed in the position that appeared on the cover of Life magazine, they sold that horse for $266,000. A pocket knife of Abraham Lincoln fetched over $100,000. A, a violin is being up, hold, held up for auction this week for $16 million. What makes a stuffed horse, a pocket knife, and a violin worth so much more? It's when it's identified with its owner. It's when it's identified with its owner. Who are the treasured people? 
the people who love him and know him, who have embraced Jesus Christ as Lord. The privileges are many. The favors are many. What warrants such privileges extends such favors? We sang it earlier. Remember? The pain of searing loss. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But Peter does give an answer at the end of the verse. That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He says, look, why do you have these advantages? Why do you have these privileges? Why do you have these favors? The King James reads, that ye may show forth the excellencies of him. Another translation has it that you may proclaim his virtues. By the way, it speaks of a shining or a lasting quality of light. In the Septuagint, they use the same word to translate the Hebrew word glory. That you may proclaim the glory the supreme qualities, the attributes of God show forth as a verb that means to tell out. It actually has the crass meaning even of to advertise or to publish abroad. Hapas, exagelete. It means to speak in such a way that you want to communicate the content. People are in the dark. Fallen humanity lies in a desperate state of rebellion and wickedness. People are by and large unaware of the excellencies of God, the lasting qualities of God. With the privilege comes this responsibility to tell people the truth about their lost condition and God's willingness to save them in Jesus Christ. And how could God do such a thing? Again, that's the message of the Bible. When it says that you may proclaim the praises of him. Who? The self-existent God. The self-sufficient God. The eternal God. The infinite God. The omnipresent God. The omnipotent God. The omniscient, wise, immutable, sovereign, incomprehensible, holy, just, righteous, true, faithful, light, good, merciful, gracious, loving. You, you latch on whatever attribute comes to your mind and you say this transcendent spirit, this person who is the creator... This person who made you wants to know you and wants to have access to you and wants to save you. That's why he says, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's what we were done. We were called out of darkness. Darkness in the Bible speaks of the emptiness and void associated with the sin and rebellion against God. Darkness is way more than emptiness and void. It speaks of loss. We have no light. We have no joy. We have no righteousness. There's no love. There is no fellowship. There is no confidence. There's a reason why the unbeliever is in darkness and in despair. But some of them don't even sense that. I'm fine just the way that I am. 
I don't need God, and I don't need Christ, and I don't need the Bible, and I don't need forgiveness of sin. Why, I don't even believe there is such a thing as sin. Really? Do you believe that there is such a thing as right and wrong? Do you believe that there is such a thing as good and evil? Has anyone ever lied to you or cheated you or taken advantage of you? Yeah. How'd you feel about it? Great. I've never heard a single person say that. Not one single person has ever said to me, lie to me, cheat me, take advantage of me. Because guess what? Lying and cheating and stealing and taking advantage, such a, it doesn't even exist. But it does exist. We were once the enemy. We were participants in the rebellion. But God knew our frailties in Psalm 103 verse 4. He knew about our foolishness in Psalm 69 5. He elected to save us in Jesus. And so he speaks of Christ as a, as a light, as a metaphor. And light in the scriptures also associated with sight and truth and joy and health and life. We're no longer in the dark. We are in the light of Christ and the warm companionship of other believers because we've obtained mercy. And if ever there was a time in your life, if ever there was a time in your life where you walked in a dark place and you were scared to death, if ever there was a time in your life where you were afraid to go to sleep at night because you didn't even imagine that you could wake up or the nightmares that you were going to have or the eternity that you were going to face if you ever lived in the constant fear and antagonism of what happens when you die what is the truth about not only the life that we live now but the life that we're going into only the spiritual man can understand the things of the spirit in 1 Corinthians 2:14 it says the natural man doesn't even receive the things of the spirit advanced degrees understanding the original language you could completely memorize the bible and never know the lord because you know about god but you don't know god there's a gigantic difference between divine revelation of the mind of god and a divine action on the mind of man the former is revelation the latter is spiritual illumination there is a darkness that comes upon the human soul but there is also a light and the light comes and the light speaks and it says there's a way out of the darkness and there's a way out of the sin and there is hope and we become the objects of Christ's compassion. Look at verse 10. Who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. You may not have any clue concerning what you just read. But the emphasis is on privilege. Peter, a good Jew, is quoting a Jewish prophet. The prophet is Hosea. If you have a Bible, you might want to turn to Hosea chapter 1, verse 9. In Hosea chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, this is what it says. Then God said, call his name Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered, and it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There it shall be said to them, You are 
the sons of the living God. Again, in Hosea chapter 2, verse 23. Then I will sow her for myself in the earth, and I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people. And they shall say, you are my God. Let me help you understand the context and the point. The prophet Hosea is the story of a man who entered into a relationship with a woman and he married this woman and she was a prostitute. And the prophet Hosea describes the rejection of Israel and the restoration of Israel. Paul uses the same scripture to describe how God embraces the Gentile believers in Romans chapter 9, verse 25. Peter applies these verses to the entire New Testament church. Let me help you understand. God had an Old Testament people, but they broke his heart. As both Hosea and Jeremiah revealed, the tragedy in Hosea's home life, for instance, reflected the tragedy in Hosea's homeland. He had a faithless wife who presented him with three children. He owned the firstborn as his. In other words, she became pregnant. She gave birth to a child. And Hosea says, I will acknowledge this child as my child. But then he had serious doubts about the parentage of the second child, a little girl. And he named her Lo Ruhama. By the way, that's not a very popular name these days. How many girls do you know named Lo Ruhama? The name means unloved or unloved. The name means she who never knew a father's love. In other words, this is what he named the child. Don't expect me to treat you like you're mine. Don't expect a father's love. The third child, another boy, he called Lo Ami. You know what that means? Not my people. In, in the world in which I grew up in the South, they'd say, not my kin. In the modern, sophisticated world, we would say, doesn't share my DNA. Not mine. No part of my family. Imagine you have a child, you claim it as your own, you have a second child, you refuse to love the child, the third child... You completely distance because there's no genetic link whatsoever. Israel's constant infidelities caused God to disown the people he had called out to be his. And the Apostle Paul makes the application of Hosea's prophecy in his great discussion on the, the current status of Christ rejecting Israel. How is this possible? Again, the Life Application Bible Commentary gives an important note that I want to read. Listen carefully. Just as Israel had been at one time rejected by God, without any hope of forgiveness of sin, so Christians had been at one time rejected by God without any hope or mercy. But believers are now, now God's people because they have been chosen by him, verse 9. Have received mercy. And by the way, mercy means God's 
compassionate treatment of us even though we deserve the full measure of his justice. God had no obligation to gather people together to him that he would show mercy. Not one of us deserved even his slightest concern. God drawing a people to himself, lavishing mercy on them, gives overwhelming evidence of his love, the mercy ought to affect the way every believer lives, as Peter will point out in the following verses. What he means is the verses that are going to follow this passage. Do you understand what he's saying? You deserve to go to hell. And you don't have to go to hell. You deserve to be treated like you didn't belong in the family, but now you're being treated like you are in the family. As a matter of fact, in Psalm 85, 10, it says, Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. I'm going to tell you a story. It's lengthy, but listen carefully. Compassion is the most powerful antidote for hatred and bitterness that the human heart can find. It's the one way to restore love in a broken relationship. This is why God has had compassion on you. One of the most powerful stories that I've ever heard comes from Brian Deal, or Byron Deal. You may not know that name, but he was a basketball coach in Nashville, Tennessee. And he grew up with an alcoholic and an abusive father. And Byron had two brothers and three sisters, a large family, but his dad spent the family income on alcohol, and he drank and ranted and raved and cursed and threatened and hit his family, and then he left them. When Byron was 12, his father walked away from the family and would have absolutely nothing to do with them and wouldn't support them. There was no child support. There was no alimony. There was no birthday calls and there was no birthday cards. There was no Christmas. There was nothing except for hardship and abandonment. And six years later, he showed up again. Two weeks after Byron had graduated from high school, and it was an awkward meeting. He stayed about a half an hour, he left again, and this time there was no contact with him for 16 years. Byron told me, quote, My attitude towards my dad was everything that it shouldn't have been for a Christian. He had robbed me of a happy childhood. He had failed me at every point. He abused me. I hesitate to say that I hated him, but perhaps hatred isn't too strong a word. There was bitterness. There was loathing. Whenever anyone asked me about my dad, I'd shut off pretty fast. As I grew older, I put it all out of my mind, and there was just a blank spot there. I didn't think about it. I could go for years without once thinking about my father. Then out of the blue, Byron's aunt called him and said, your father's in Bristol, Virginia, very sick. He's close to death. It would mean something to him if he could see some of his children. He has cirrhosis of the liver and none of the other children wanted to see him. And Byron lived closest to Bristol. So he got in his car and he drove up there and he said, I had a ton of thoughts, not a lot of strong feelings, just a sense 
that someone should do this. I didn't want to, but it seemed like I should. He walked into the intensive care unit, and there was a 71-year-old man connected to monitors, tubes inserted into his body, surrounded by medical equipment. Byron hadn't seen him for 16 years, but he recognized the man. And something strange happened. As Byron saw his dad lying there helplessly dying, strung about with wires and tubes and monitors and machines, all the years of hatred and bitterness and anger melted away. He walked over and stood by the bedside. The man opened up his eyes. He saw Byron and he started to cry. Byron said, I wept too. It was almost as though I could see through his mind the waves of regret for the wasted years. Byron spent that day and the next day with his dad and he was surprised to find that he had a lot of feeling for the man. Quote, the burden that I had been carrying for years was lifted. We were able to talk. I was able to share the gospel with him, unquote. Byron's father, by the way, survived that stay in the hospital. He returned home briefly. And during that time, Byron visited with his wife and daughters with him. And during that visit, he grew convinced that his dad had really trusted Jesus as his savior. And later, the call came that Byron's dad had died. But Byron was no longer bitter and estranged. Because the compassion of Jesus Christ had taken a hold of his heart. Instead of seeing himself as an abused victim, full of hatred, full of anger, full of loathing, with a cold heart, he saw something else. He saw his dad through the eyes of the Lord as a needy man in darkness and wickedness. A drunk who needed Jesus. Instead of looking at your husband or looking at your wife or looking at your family member with fear or loathing or anger or coldness, just remember that there's someone who's made in the image of God. They may not even understand their own pain. They may not even understand the full extent of their darkness and their wickedness and their rebellion. But who knows? Who knows? Just like God had mercy on you, maybe God will have mercy on them. Just as God showed kindness to you, maybe God will show kindness to them. Just as God, who clearly could have treated you differently, decides to embrace you and accept you and love you and then keep you as his precious possession. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privileges. Lord, we know that some people stumble and some people are crushed. Some people live in a constant state of estrangement and wickedness, of hardship and rebellion and diso disobedience. 
Lord, who knows why they would want to continue to live a life of estrangement from you. And yet, Lord, we know that if we will turn to you, if we will turn from our sin, and that we'll turn to you, if we'll walk away from our sin and our rebellion, if we will declare the truth about our rebellion and our disobedience and admit that you're willing to call a truce, that you're willing to love us and accept us and embrace us. Lord, we remember what the New Testament said, come to me and I will in no wise cast you out. Lord, for the person who has been not accepted but rejected, for the person who's been not included but excluded, from the person who seems to have always been that odd person out, Lord, we pray that they would be included in the invitation. And Heavenly Father, I pray that you would extend that invitation to that lonely heart, to that empty heart, to that broken heart. Lord, I pray that Jesus would become real. I pray that the person would surrender, that they'd turn from their sin. Lord, I pray that the darkness would leave and the light would come. I pray that the fear of death would go away permanently and the celebration of life would become a part of their eternal future. Lord, for the person who's never accepted Jesus, Lord, I pray that they would examine their heart and they would ask this simple question. Do I know you, really? Have I experienced forgiveness of my sin? Do I want to go to heaven? Lord, for the person who asks those questions and the answer is, I, I do admit that I'm a sinner and I do want to accept Jesus as my Savior. I, I want to be accepted rather than rejected. I want to live a life not of hardness and bitterness and anger and loathing and resentment, but Lord, I want to, I want to live a life of love and compassion. I want my life to be noted by mercy and grace and love. Lord, I pray that you'd fill their heart. And if that's you and you need to know Jesus and you've never received him as your Lord and Savior, know that you can. And it really is as simple as praying a simple prayer. You can say it to yourself quietly right where you are. Heavenly Father, Lord, you know my heart and my circumstances. No one is clearer about my life than you. No one knows about the hardship and the darkness, the rejection and the abandonment. No one knows better than you who I am and what I've done. But Lord, I turn from my sin and I turn to you. I receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior. I want to walk with him. I want to know him. I want to love him. I want to serve him. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.